if you can avoid going out to raise now, but you can avoid increasing your burn or funding marginal products or projects, do it. For the episode today, I'm thrilled to welcome Benjamin Gleason, co-founder and head of corporate strategy at Camino, Sao Paulo-based end-to-end financial hub for high-growth businesses in Latin America that has recently raised over $6 million in pre-seed capital from Inspired Capital, Global Founders Capital, Fonches, Picos Capital, and Flourish. Prior to co-founding Camino, Benjamin co-founded a personal finance platform, Gia Bolsu, which was acquired by PicPay in 2021. Benjamin, it's a pleasure to have you as a guest. Welcome to the J-Curve. Thank you. Very glad to be here. Now, I'd love to start with a little bit on you. Tell me, how did you make your way into the world of tech entrepreneurship and come to become a serial entrepreneur in Brazil? Yeah, both questions were not obvious way back in the day. I'm originally from the U.S., actually from Wisconsin. Brazil is quite far from the reality that I grew up with when I started to learn Spanish and traveled across Latam and then made my way to visit Brazil and fell in love with it and decided to learn Portuguese and got my first job in part to open an office in Brazil. So that was a connection uh, to Brazil. But I graduated in economics, started working in corporate finance. I did an MBA award in 2007 and there were only a handful of entrepreneurs. Nobody was talking about it. And it was really a friend brought me into it. I was at McKinsey. I took a leap of absence and spent three months living in the biggest favela in Rio de Janeiro and basically doing a turnaround of an NGO there as a volunteer project. And it was thinking about our next steps that I had on the table and ended up deciding to join a very good friend of mine at his startup. So that was really the start. And I went to run Groupon at the beginning, this kind of crazy explosion of daily deals. And I was also a friend who asked me to join him. And Gibble so was also a very good friend that we co-founded the, the company with. Kind of looking back, I did fall in love with being an entrepreneur in this lifestyle of being in startups, but I think ultimately it has a lot to do with having a good friend at the right place, right time, and, and making the lead together. Is there anything specifically that attracts you towards being an entrepreneur in emerging markets? Why not to be an entrepreneur in the United States? There's two reasons. One is the more practical and one is more about the conviction. When I was in the U.S. in the early days of trying to raise money, some of the VCs would say like, oh, we don't like MBAs, we don't like ex-consultants. And I used to joke like a 22-year-old computer science major from Stanford, probably couldn't even manage to open a company in Brazil, much less run <laughs> Because of all the bureaucracy, the additional challenges of here uh, in Brazil, the VCs in the market respects experience. They respect people that are able to navigate more obstacles, but from more of the conviction and the opportunity perspective, I think you can solve much bigger problems here and very real fundamental problems that people and companies are facing. Uh, whereas in the U.S., it's so crowded that you're going for something very niche or nice to have and not must have. Here, even, you know, we'll talk probably more about this, but with Gibble, so we decided, you know, how do we solve personal finance for millions? That was the starting point. So a very broad thesis and problem that we went after as opposed to something so niche. So that really excites me here. And talking about Gibble, so what made you think back in 2012 that the market timing was right for starting this kind of company? And maybe take me back a little bit. What did the ecosystem in Brazil look like back in 2012? What was it like starting the company, raising capital, building the team? How was that experience for you? I had gotten some exposure to the little bit of ecosystem that there was through running Groupon and had met other entrepreneurs Many of them were expat entrepreneurs at the time. Most companies getting funded were e-commerce. You know, the hot space, but on the other hand, you immediately had a competitor company or business file, and we didn't want to go down that path. And then as we looked at financial services, my co-founder, Thiago, had worked at financial services at McKinsey quite extensively and just seeing how the banks were so dominant and consumers had so little power, so little information. And as Brazil was booming... Consumers were getting tons of credit as Brazil economy slowed down. Consumers really got in trouble around the credit and the banks had whole credit portfolios blowing up. 
it became very clear that neither the consumers really understood the credit products nor the banks really understood the consumers. And that was our starting point of saying, this is a very significant problem. There's clearly massive inefficiencies on both sides. We can have a huge impact in a very large and lucrative market. In terms of fundraising, it was very, very hard. And there were just a handful of VCs, dedicated seed fund, yeah, Kazakh and Monashis, but they would do everything from seed to series A and different stage financing. It wasn't available at all. And there weren't very many professional angels. I got some ex McKinsey and your friends from Warden who were in investment banking. Why don't you do like an investment banking contract for angel investment stuff? And so it was really a ton of bureaucracy. We were so desperate just chasing after anyone that I found a Venezuelan VC and asked a, a Venezuelan friend about him. And he's like, no, this guy stole all this money from, from Venezuela. You don't want to go there. Also at the time, very little information was available and the service providers didn't really know how to work with startups. It was hard to find banks, hard to find lawyers accountants, you know, really anything. And we'll talk more about what I'm doing now with Camino. But ironically, back in the day, there was an informal group of startups called the Startup Mansion. It turned out to be a lot of expat founders as well. There, and because it was all companies in a similar stage, we had this kind of community of, okay, who is the bank manager who actually opened the bank's account? Who is the lawyer who actually knows what they're doing? It was a very unique bubble. There was almost no ecosystem at the time. There were 10 or so startups that started in this startup mansion that you had Printy and Pitsy and Ingressi and this whole host of companies that ended up doing pretty well in addition to Gibolso. How did Camino come to be? It was very much based on my experience with Gibolso because it was so hard on the seed stage and you were desperately trying to find our product market shades and think about the next round of funding. And then back in 2014, we talked to a bunch of investors about the next round. Our money was running out and finally got a term sheet from Cossack. Thank God we got this term sheet. We're going to have money. And then it's like, oh, all you have to do now is open a holding company in Cayman and you know, open a company in the U.S. and get a U.S. bank account. And then, wait, how do I do that? Oh, these are some options. Good luck. <laughs> so it was a very much doing it on my own and figuring out each step. And nobody, even the advisors, didn't really know how to do that. So we ended up not getting the money in time because it was over a carnival and the FX markets were closed. We had to get money out of our own personal account, get payroll, and then the money came in after. And then once we had the funding, did subsequent rounds over the years. Even eight, nine years into Gibble, so still we had very low credit card limits, a ton of friction around contracting SaaS services and having to recreate payments work consistently on the credit card. Cross-border payments were a huge source of friction. I was still spending inordinate amount of time as a founder on this really operational finance issues. And also talking to a lot of new founders coming into the market. They were going through the exact same thing of like, how do I set up my company? How do I get a bank account? How do I get a structure that I can get the funding? And then once I get the funding, how do I deploy the capital? So that problem was very clear to me and something that I wanted to solve in scale rather than individually. And the other piece is what I mentioned before about friends and teams coming together. It was two very good friends of mine who I hired a group on back in the day. We'd worked together in this very intense, high growth environment. They went on to become also serial entrepreneurs. And so we were talking about this problem and decided, let's jump in and try to solve this together. And I just sold a Gibble sort of peak pay. So it was, I one hand perfect timing. <laughs> I had the right team. I knew the problem. I had the opportunity to do it. On the other hand, a challenge because I just done almost 10 years of, of one good tech and immediately jumped into bonding a new one. <laughs> ultimately, I decided it was opportunity and not. <laughs> now, so Bridget, when you reflect on this decade of experience with building company across different market cycles, what are those key learnings that you transfer to Camino? What are you doing the same and what are you doing different? Yeah, that's a great question. I think one thing which is the same is really thinking a lot about the founding team and 
founder Unity, founders don't always have to agree with my co-founder from Bolsa Chad, we would have fierce arguments and debates. You have to have the space where you can disagree and work through things, but then ultimately you need the unity at the end. And so I think this concept of disagree and then commit is extremely important. It's something that we brought to Camino as well. Also, Chad and I had a fairly similar profile, both ex-consultants. It was pretty complimentary. We worked well together, but we didn't have a technical co-founder at the time. So this time, in addition to the three of us, we brought a fourth co-founder, Rodrigo Benia, who was the director of engineering at Mercado Pago. Having somebody as a CTO who also thinks like a partner is very important. So you don't get disconnects between the technology team and the overall company. That was a key learning. And the other thing is at the time, nobody had really worked in startups. Nobody really had a new product or UX. And now there are. And so I think this piece of how do you bring in people that are really motivated? I have also done this before and you won't get scared if you shift or pivot along the way and that sort of thing. So really screening on not only hard skills, but also soft skills and resilience and grit. And that's something that we're bringing a lot into our kind of evaluation and into our values. Of the- and if you were to think about the customer side, about the go-to-market strategy, the acquisition of the first bunch of customers, sitting the product market said, are there any learnings that you transferred that you can share? Yeah, for sure. Back in 2012, it was not at all obvious that mobile was the future. And actually, yeah, also we started as a web-based product. And then we were doing digital acquisition. Once we launched our iPhone app, it immediately exploded. So it was very clear that mobile was the future. We became an app company rather than a web-based company. But because it was so new, in a sense, you could still acquire users fairly cheaply from Google or Facebook ads with a good CAC. Nowadays, that space is completely saturated. All the big banks, all the fintechs have spent tons of money on marketing. I don't really believe in paid user acquisition anymore. And using that as your main channel, I think what's changed is really thinking about how you generate user acquisition opportunities via partnerships, for example, or organic opportunities through your network. So thinking a lot more about the distribution strategy as opposed to only the product and the business model. That's the first thing that I tell, especially fintech entrepreneurs, like some come to me and still think they're going to acquire their users via Google and Facebook. I don't think that's a feasible new economic strategy these days. Acquisition through Facebook and Google doesn't really deliver. The network effects of users, every user has no connection to the other user. And I think especially in Brazil, where the population is so social, building an alternative strategy for customer acquisition should be simpler in the way. Would you agree with that? Yeah, for sure. Because of the social aspect, you really do need to think how do you help users to recommend other users. There are a number of different strategies on that. It's hard to get on the first try, but it's something that you constantly have to be playing around with some type of member member to stimulate this kind of organic user growth. At the same time as you're working on different outbound strategies, as well as the partnerships, especially in FinTech, as you're thinking about qualified users, you're wanting to have a positive selection of users. So if you can find different groups, positively selected users and get partnerships to bring those users to you and you already have sense of user profile ahead of time versus somebody who randomly downloads an app from a Google Play. It's very hard to even understand that user and what they might be coming for, what they need. So I do think there's a lot of things in terms of signals and data that you can also get via with these very specific channel partnership strategies. I want to touch a little bit on the culture. You mentioned something that I find really interesting, and that was consistent feedback among people who I talked to. The founders unity, that you managed to build a very aligned team in Gebolso, and looks like the experience is pretty similar in Camino. What are the foundational elements of productive company culture? Yeah, back in the early days of Gebolso, we'd come out of McKinsey. I think most McKinsey associates and analysts are pretty highly motivated and pretty highly filtered. So you had this high skill and high will group, whereas that's not at all necessarily the case in a startup. I mean, you're hiring who you can find. So 
those were elements where we thought a lot about maybe you don't have the exact skill that you need, but then how do you create an environment where people with high potential or highly motivated can learn the skill, for example, in Gable. So we taught a lot of people how to do product. They came in as very analytical, smart people, and then learned product from there. That's one way that you can think about developing people into the specific skill sets that you need. And then the other thing is about will. Not everyone is highly motivated. Not everyone wants to go through ups and downs of a startup in the early days. People were so scared about joining a startup that we would only sell the good parts. And nowadays we try to be very clear and scare people in a way. You know, there will be ups, there will be downs, and you're going to have to be comfortable with uncertainty, comfortable with change, you know, to be resilient. So looking for that as a trait that people have shown in the past and also making sure they know coming in that that's expected or required is a good filter, even though it might mean sometimes that people decide not to join, but it's better to know upfront rather than have three months in, six months in. The other piece, every time I talk to serial entrepreneurs, I find that they've hired and fired faster. I think most first-time entrepreneurs wait and try 18 different things before even thinking about firing someone. And, and ultimately, when you let someone go, it's not just it's good for the team, but also for that person at the end of struggling, 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 you keep giving them more chances, but they're not really going anywhere. And so it's often better just have an honest conversation and let them try something else where they might have a better fit. I think you get more comfortable with that over time, uh, despite it being obviously super hard to let someone go from a small, closely knit team. How long do you give people who underperform? How do you structure the line of communication with them during this time? I think feedback is super important. And one thing I found in Brazil, it's maybe cultural, is if we're doing something side by side and I'm like, hey, you didn't do this right, do it differently. People don't really see that necessarily as feedback. It's helped to be more explicit that you are giving them feedback. You do expect them to be able to act on, on this stuff and that you also really want their success. So people feel like they are getting the feedback and that way it's not a surprise. That's one element of it that's important. And then the other thing in startups, you're running so fast. There's so many things on your plate and oftentimes you're like, oh, we just hired this person. And then you're like, oh, wait, it's been seven months and we're still not performing. So I think it's also having a little bit more rigor on the process of making sure two, three months in, there is a checkpoint that you are thinking about, is this person doing well? Are they in the right role and making the adjustments that you need to make? And also really gut feeling has been pretty consistent, probably nine times out of 10, if you have a gut feeling that someone's just not working, they rarely turn it around. And that's why new founders, if you have a strong gut feeling, give the feedback, be proactive, make sure that you're communicating to the person, but don't stick it out too long because it's not good for either side. The other day I had Guilherme Azevedo on the podcast and he said that to him, alignment on the mission is one of the critical elements of building the team and hiring, especially early employees. How important mission alignment is for you and how do you think about mission? Does that matter? And if it does, why? Yeah, I think it's massively important. Mission and impact was a huge piece of the culture that we had to give also. That allowed us in the early days to hire way more qualified people have been probably our stage of development at the time would have allowed us to even talk to, but they came in extremely motivated by the mission. So it's something that certainly we're looking to replicate a Camino. But the one kind of caution is you don't want people that are only driven by this very high level mission because ultimately a startup needs to be a viable business, which means having a viable financial model. That's something that I'm bringing sooner at Camino is, is that balance of having the mission, having the social impact. But it's only worthwhile if we're going to be around in five, 10 years. And the only way that that happens is if we have a real business model. Talking about the next five to 10 years, if everything goes right, how does the future for Camilla look like? The long-term vision is to be a centralized platform where all of the financial flows 
challenges of high growth businesses, both venture back and non-venture back are taken care of. At least at let out, that's where we'd like to get to. And how do you think about the competition? It seems that there's a number of players who are trying to address the similar type of problems. I think if you look at the developed market like the US, despite the fact that you do have a lot of incumbent players, which are fairly competence, you have the Silicon Valley banks and the Amexes, and nonetheless, you have this whole generation of, of new fintechs, whether it's Brex, Mercury, trying to solve these kind of problems in the developing markets like Brazil. There's really nobody doing this well today. The hole is much deeper in a way. It's just so many pain points. What we generally see is either that other players that are focusing on much broader markets, maybe the entire SMB market and not necessarily only fast growth companies like we're looking at, or they're focusing on point solutions. We have a strategy of being much more of a hub and bringing in partnerships to supply really good products across the stack and then make sure those products have a lot to do with each other, whether it's on the you know your customer data to sign up and get the products, all the way through having the full view of all of your financial operations. I think ultimately that will be a big difference maker. And our team is quite unique in that we're all serial entrepreneurs that have built companies in Brazil. And also just by chance, all four of us co-founders are team in Spanish and have worked across the line amp. Hopefully that translates to a smoother transition into other markets when we're ready to do that. That said, we're super open to partnership. It doesn't make sense for two fintechs to kill each other head to head. If the big bank will end up being one who wins, I'd much rather find ways to partner to make sure that we are taking market share from the incumbents or creating a new market share. But once you've done this a few times, I think that's also a point of maturity and kind of the practicality edge. It's better to work together. It's better not an open dialogue than to start chasing after all these different kind of place solutions, which may or may not end up being real competitors in the future. Would you say that this is a winner takes it all kind of market, or that's the market where a bunch of players would emerge and have a decent market share? How do you think about the market composition? Yeah, I tend to think it's not winner takes all. If you think about the financial flows, traditionally you do see that even Series B and C companies, for example, they're using different banking accounts, different credit cards, different payment routes. So I think that there is room to have multiple players there. Something more like a Carta type solution. I do think there are massive network effects. Once you get all of the cap tables from the platform and the market gravitates to using a single platform, but within the financial piece, there's just so many things to solve. There's the investment side, the credit side, the payment side. It's unlikely that one player will be able to really solve that from seed to series D and to non-venture backed companies across border. The other thing that we look at is Typically, companies start out as more looking like banks and then try to move into more of a software type offering where they start out more like ERPs or software companies and they try to move into more of a financial services offering. I don't think anyone's gotten a great native experience for both here. That also tells me that there's going to be this kind of mix of different players because I don't think anyone's necessarily going to solve that completely on the financial side and on the software side. And when you think about financial side, when you look at the evolution of financial services markets in Brazil over the course of the last decade. What are the elements that surprised you the most? For sure, at a central bank. When we started to give also people from the industry, told us there was some risk that a central bank could try to close us down because they tended to always look at the stability of the overall financial markets. They said they could see us as a threat to stability. And over the last 10 years, they went from being unknown and a potential threat into being this incredible institution, which is driving competition, driving innovation driving things like open banking regulation, really cutting edge in the entire world. A lot of the stuff they launched picks in record time. The U.S. is talking about something like picks for 10 years and Brazil and the central bank did it. And so I think that's just amazing. Actually, I was talking to one of the top VCs from the Valley 
they don't do a lot of investing in, in Brazil. So I kind of thought, did they even know anything about Brazil? And they mentioned that they thought Brazil's central bank was the best in the world right now. 10 years ago, probably the BC River Valley didn't even know that Brazil had a central bank. <laughs> so it's really remarkable how much of a great partner the central bank has been. And that's allowed the fintechs to really scale. The other piece is just, we all had big dreams. I had talked to some of the old school entrepreneurs about this. You know, back in the day, you pitched to BC, okay, you think we can be a billion dollar company, but you didn't really necessarily think that was feasible because there were no billion dollar company benchmarks to look at. And nowadays you see the massive scale, obviously new bank, but then credit to us, there's a whole host of players that have really gotten massive. It's gone from this nice startups off on the sidelines to being startups. That's actually forcing the big banks to completely rethink their business models, their digital strategies. That's just fascinating. And really to me, if I look back on the last 10 years, probably the thing that I'm most proud of is being part of driving this massive wave, which has made things better for everyone. Even if they're still using a big bank, the big bank has come so far because of the direct competition. Besides central bank policy, what do you think contributed to this fintech boom that the country has been experienced over the course of the last few years? Definitely this massive smartphone penetration, broadband internet, the cost of data going down in Brazil is being open to new solutions and uh, being very social when they find something good to share that also led to this leap to digital technologies and the banking apps here, I think are better than the banking apps in the U.S. Uh, whereas the physical branch experience here is, is horrible. Uh, it's so clear that you would prefer to use digital means here as opposed to having to go to bank branches. And I think that led to people shifting really quickly and uh, because the previous status quo was terrible and now you have better options. And what I think about the future, what are some of the trends in financial services in Brazil that you are specifically excited about? I do think there's a lot of things here where there's still friction around data availability and contracts. You're still spending tons of time and negotiating contracts and then trying to interpret the contracts. I do think you will see some of the web three stuff like smart contracts and tokenizing some things to make it more accessible and more fungible. I also think this new digitally native generation, they're still in a consumption phase, but as their salaries go up, they'll need more financing solutions, better investment solutions. And the business side, SMBs are horribly served on average and traditional banks really struggle to understand them and struggle to understand company with very little history, which is spending in order to generate growth. The target that we're looking at for Camino, there's this entire stack that you can drive via these businesses and all the way down to their employees, to their customers. And so we'll continue to see the startups that are targeting businesses as a distribution model. I think that's really exciting to see as you start to get different companies working together on similar customer profile, but having complementary products that can replace the existing products or in many cases, the gaps of many people don't have any insurance, many people don't have any savings. They're just not prepared for the future. And I think that's something that FinTech is going to try to solve here. I want to talk a little bit about the fundraising environments. You raised over $6 million in seed, where the markets were in this FinTech bonanza kind of situation. How would your fundraising approach and operational approach for that matter would be different if you had to raise today in the recession? It's funny because my previous seed fundraising experience, I've been in a very tough market and I was getting like lists of the VCs that could be seed VCs uh, now and I haven't even heard of half of them because there's just like, so many that have popped up very recently. We actually started more conservatively. Technically it was a pre-seed raised because we raised it based on a PowerPoint and a founding team. We set out to raise less money to have an initial proof of concept and have some traction and then go for a larger kind of seed raise. And the market was so hot that like two weeks of talking to investors, we were three or four times oversubscribed and suddenly the investors were saying, why don't you raise more money? Why don't you increase the valuation? It was quite different than 
anything I had experienced before, but in emerging markets, they always say, if the money is there, take it. <laughs> so ultimately we did quite a large pre-seed raise and we we're thinking we can deploy this very aggressively and then move to seed around fairly quickly. Fortunately, we finished the round at the top of this hot period. And as the market cooled off, we ended up having very good timing because we didn't have a large burn yet. So it was very natural to shift a little bit how we're thinking about running the business extend the runway. We didn't need to make any cuts or, or adjust anything from that perspective. Uh, being serial entrepreneurs and having that through so many cycles, we're more conservative. We're much more thinking about different scenarios. We're not the ones that want to go out as kind of a fortune Google on certain TV ads and just have this crazy, non-sustainable growth. We do have this unit economics <laughs> mentality that the market has come back to now. Anyway, as an ecosystem perspective, I've seen a lot of founders that were probably only signing companies because they felt like the market's so high and I can't afford not to found a company, but I don't think they really had deep conviction. They might not really have cared that much about the problem that they were trying to solve. And now uh, new entrepreneurs coming into the market will be serious about solving the problem, which I think we're going to see another great generation of entrepreneurs coming out of these tough times. I think that because you're a serial founder, a successful founder, despite the environment, you would be able to raise. It might not be two weeks fundraising, it might be a couple of months, but I think you'd get there. But if you think about first-time founders starting the companies and going out for their first raise, what would be your advice in terms of how to tackle fundraising right now? And you mentioned unit economics. How do you think about benchmarks in unit economics? Yeah, in general now, I'd say that the founders should take the time to have really gone out and tested things in the market. So done a lot of discovery with their target customers, done some tests with target customers using no code or local tools have at least some type of prototype available to show investors. That goes a long ways. There's the investor seeing that they've done the groundwork, they, they understand the target segment, they understand the problem, they have a sense of where the solution might lie. And then the other thing is the founder does need to sit down and think more about unit economics and what are the revenue assumptions, what are the underlying drivers, how will they validate that over time. But on the cost perspective, what's the distribution model? Do they have hypotheses about how to scale distribution? These are always the first customers. Friends and family often be cheap and easy to get, but then how do you take next step in terms of scale? So I think having really thought through that stuff and understanding some of the drivers and being able to look at the benchmarks and understand, is it sustainable? Is it not sustainable? What are the companies that you can really look to to say, okay, they've gotten a great distribution strategy. So we think we can apply that to our business model like this. And then what are the ones that have ultimately scaled revenue to apply it back to the business model? The other thing that I've seen is the founders who are coming in now and raising money. It's often helpful if they have a very specific sector focus. So rather than being like, I'd be later for everyone. Now it's like very specifically the healthcare sector within this specific niche in healthcare, this is where we're starting. We really understand this piece of the business. There's obviously room to expand, but we're starting here. That's also important. And now so the investor can see more tangible what the first steps might look like as opposed to all huge market to attack the whole thing <laughs> because you want to have the money to attack the whole thing and hire hundred people in the first year, probably nowadays. And so you come to more with less and being very focused as what investors are ultimately looking at. Do you think we hit the floor with the recession in Brazil or you think the floor is yet to be determined? Yeah, <laughs> it's like billion dollar pension. People who are a lot smarter than me and control this stuff a lot more tend to think that there's going to be a worsening still. I think in Brazil, there's a lot of uncertainty locally, obviously. One big thing coming up is the presidential election, seeing how the presidential election goes, how the new president, who they appoint to key economic positions, how they set their initial economic strategy that will impact the currency and inflation and ultimately the GDP growth. And then also in the world, there's massive uncertainty. How Brazil navigates through that will be important, but I would tend to 
assume that the worst is not here yet. <laughs> if you can avoid going out to raise now, but you can avoid increasing your burn or funding marginal products or projects, do it and think of this as a longer cycle. Maybe it won't be a super deepening of the problem, but it might be a long dragging problem of persistent inflation, which means interest rates have to stay high, which means that GDP growth and the markets don't rebound quite as quickly. You know, things that customers really need, not things which are nice to have, do things which are must have, because ultimately there should be a market for that regardless. And be ready, prepare for the worst and ready for the best in a way. I love this advice. I want to touch on one more thing before we move to the rapid fire. And the thing is perseverance and grit. When I did my research, I was really impressed with how many years you were grinding with Giaboso. And I think sometimes grind makes sense, but sometimes it doesn't. When you talk to founders, when do you advise them to iterate and keep on grinding until they get where they want versus when to quit, reflect, and start again? Yeah, that's a great question. I actually have had a few hard conversations with founders where I brought up like, maybe it's the time to actually think about shutting down and not continuing it. That's really hard for a founder to hear, <laughs> but I think that there's definitely a timing issue. If you're too early, it may be impossible. And the other thing from the founder perspective is, is your heart still in it? Does your team believe? Is this still a mom that you want to climb? Or maybe you should take some time and then go climb a different one. So I think really reflecting on is the will and the grit still there to do it and not just doing it kind of stubbornness or out of ego is quite important because there is an opportunity cost. You can still be an entrepreneur, but maybe you need to shift over. The other thing is investors are a mixed bag. I think oftentimes investors you know, do too much kind of recognition, too much like formal follow the herd. The fact that investors don't want to fund your business or your business model isn't necessarily an indication that it's not good. But if you've been at this for a while, you've been trying to raise for a few years and no investors are getting excited about it, that also might be a sign that yeah, it's time to stop. One great piece of advice I got actually from a woman, she's a fintech entrepreneur in, in India. She told me that when she finally saw that it wasn't going to work and she had to lay off uh, her whole team, it was so hard that she suffered so much before she did it. But when she finally did it, the team said, we're waiting for you to do this because it was crazy. You were going to kill yourself from trying to make this thing go. And they said, we totally understand that you're doing the right thing. She ultimately went and founded a new fintech and much of her previous team actually joined her they saw that she'd been responsible and made the right decision. So I think it's not like, okay, if you decide to shut something down, that's it, you're done. Nobody else will want to work with you in the future. In the founder chair, it can be lonely. And so you get that sensation sometimes, but it's ultimately not true if you do things the right way. And there is life after it is a decision a founder can make without feeling like it's all or nothing all the time. Yeah, I love how you put it. The end of the company is not terminal. When you look at this as a trend, as a continuation, making this kind of decision becomes a little bit easier. Now I'd love to move to a rapid fire. I'll ask you five short questions and I'll appreciate your immediate responses. Let's dive right in. The first question is, when you think about success, who's the first person that comes to mind? I would say Barack Obama. I think it's amazing that Barack Obama became president in the United States and if you think about someone who looks presidential these days, I think many people would say Barack Obama is the definition of someone who actually looks presidential, unlike some of the people who followed. 20 years ago, you never would have thought someone who looked like Barack Obama could be the definition of presidential. But to me, that's just incredible that he was able to do that. Yeah, completely agree. Question number two. If a crystal ball could tell you the truth about yourself, your life, the future, or anything else, what would you want to know? I mean, what if people have been banking ever? Actually, we were people working in a doubt there, but that's more of a specific thing. The other thing, more in general, I wonder about 
educational systems and how much that will change. I have small kids. If you still put them through the traditional educational model, that's still going to be the future. If there's not going to be any more universities, as we know them today in 20 years, then it's a waste of time to try an alternative approach. So I would love to know how is education going to evolve to meet the new challenges that the world is going through. What has been the toughest leadership decision you had to make so far? Definitely when we had to make decisions about restructuring and laying off a lot of people. It's so hard because in the start of you're growing, 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 and then you reach a point of, we need to make this very hard decision and cut back. And then you're still looking to grow again. It's hard for leaders. It's hard for the people that are affected. It's hard for the media to understand it. Now it's quite common, but if you're doing it in an isolated way, it's such a hard decision. Don't want to go through that again. What are you better at than most anyone else? What's your superpower? My, uh, my gear both co-founder was in negotiation. <laughs> I was like the chief negotiating officer. One thing I thought was interesting, just this from a U.S. perspective, I think people tend to try to optimize the size of the pie in negotiations. From a Latin American perspective, they're trying to maximize the size of their slice. And they don't really care about what the other person ends up with. And I think I have a mix of both and so I'm trying to maximize the pie while at the same time get the biggest slice. Sometimes that can be effective. I get it. <laughs> I love that. And the last question, if you were an alcoholic beverage, which beverage would you be and why? Well, I love single malt scotch. So I'd say that the Balvini 14 year Caribbean cask, yeah, that's one of my favorites, but it's like Balvini, you know, single malt scotch from Scotland, very traditional and classic, but uh, the Caribbean cask uh, gives it a tropical <laughs> exotic uh, twist. So, I guess that's me from, from Wisconsin to, to Brazil. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised it's not cachaça, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cachaça is a tough one. You really got to get into it because you don't have like so many high-end, really quality ones. They're, they are out there, but they're not mass available to the same way. I think they're just not marketed correctly. Benjamin, thank you so much for being with me today. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, pleasure for my side as well. This is awesome. And congrats on the, the great podcast and really bringing the spotlight to light on. That's fantastic. Excited to keep following your program and uh, continue to collaborate. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The J Curve. It was such a pleasure to have Benjamin as my guest. To learn more about Camino, go to camino.com.br with a K. And to hear more from us, subscribe to our newsletter at www.thejcurve.com. The J Curve is also available on all major podcasting platforms, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thank you for being with me today.